Nehemiah chapter 9, we are picking back up in our study of Nehemiah where we are looking at really the components that are involved with God bringing his people back to his place to enjoy his presence. And we want to be that people. We want to be a people that are healthy spiritually because that's what God desires. And I think it's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. And we're looking through these different components. Every chapter, we kind of see a different component of how God builds his people in his place to experience his presence. So that's us. And our, our series has been titled Building Healthy Spirituality. And today, we're going to look at the role of confession uh, as uh, the people of God. And really, how, how within this restoration movement in Jerusalem... Uh, The people have been exiled. God's people have been exiled, thrown out of the promised land because of their faithlessness, uh, their disobedience to God's desire and glory for their lives. And they now are coming back. And they're restoring. God's restoring. Remember, we looked at the centrality of the word and how prayer is the experience of his presence. So everything really is by prayer. That's why Paul says, pray without ceasing. What I think he's saying is keep on experiencing God's presence in every way everywhere available, uh, but also within that experience, we're giving our petitions to him. So there's the role of the, the centrality of the word, but also the worship that happens within the community uh, of, uh, of God and, and gathering together. We don't, we don't sing songs because it's just what you're supposed to do before you hear preaching. Uh, we sing songs because it, it's God's gift to give expression to our affections for him. And sometimes it, uh, uh, singing Christ our King, I appreciate Chris's sensitivity to bring that song to us today because that get, captured me and I was, uh, songs do that. And we love how God does that with the worship that we have. And today we'll look at, a, uh, I think, sometimes a neglected component because it means that we have to look at ourselves a little deeply, a little more deeply than we're used to. Uh, and actually tell others how much we're not perfect and how much maybe we're broken and need healing. And it's a vulnerability to it. And when we, when we interact with vulnerability enough and it doesn't go well, uh, we clam up and we guard ourselves. We become calloused to what other people are saying and thinking. So we want to be one, a people that are safe to interact with, that there's no, there's, there could be confession of sin without condemnation. But we also want to be a people that just proclaim the glory of God in all that he is. That's part of confession that we'll look at. So let's look at the, the chapter, Nehemiah 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. 
Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven and heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him to out of Ur of the Chaldean, Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land, of his land. For you knew they had acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them the gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go into the, to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sahan, king of Heshbon, and the land, uh, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time 
And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of the enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet they turned and cried to you and you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit to the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of of Assyria until this day. That you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid their great goodness, they gave that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before him, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set before us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of the princes, our Levites, and our priests. Father, we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would bless the preaching of your word. Change us into the image of your Son. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1948, following World War II, Winston Churchill gave a speech to the House of Commons. And in that speech, uh, something that he said has become known throughout history. Those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Actually, it was a paraphrase of something that somebody else said in 1905. George Santayana, who's the one who said it first. But remember, after World War II, the political climate, uh, they, they are relieved that there's no more war. And Winston Churchill says, careful, we got to pay attention because we don't want to repeat ourselves. Those who endured World War I, which was the Great War, until war broke out again, they thought the same thing. Churchill was able to say that Churchill was a student of history. He loved Shakespeare. He would research, he loved, and, and I think he, he recognized what Hitler was doing because of his understanding of what Rome, the emperors of Rome did because he wanted to be, Hitler wanted to be the next Roman Empire. There is truth and relevance to Churchill's statement. History does indeed repeat itself because men are proud. We go through life seeking to advance ourselves among the advancements that we are around. While humanity has advanced exponentially in the past couple hundred years, exponentially, the hearts of men 
remain the, exactly the same. Everybody's trying to make a name for themselves rather than exalt God in his rule and his reign over all things. This chapter in Nehemiah shows us that those who returned to Israel after the, the Babylonian exile had the understanding that, wait, we don't want to, re- we've seen history repeat itself, we don't want to repeat it now. They looked at their own history, recognized how their situation was due to a lack of faith, lack of wisdom required to walk humbly with God in obedience. As we seek to build a healthy spirituality, both personally and corporately, as a church, we must see the place and necessity of confession. We, we want to strive for a culture of confession. The returned exiles... They worked hard to provide physical security, building the wall around them, but then they went deep into their hearts. They went, they, there was a physical protection and security, but now they're turning inward to say, God, what inside of us might cause us to not experience your presence in your place? As the word has been central, worship being joyful, confessions now added to their prayer. Confession, uh, think of it as a coin, but it's got two sides. The first, the, the word confession in the original language is admit, but to cast off and to cast up. You're, you're doing something with confession or you're casting, but it's also meaning to say the same thing as, to agree with. Now, when we first think of confession, we think of confession of sin. I need to confess my sins. I need to cast those off, cast those up, admit that I'm wrong, agree with God. But there's also a confession of faith. A lot of times we don't. Now, uh, traditional um, uh, church settings sometimes will highlight we still have this confessional. And there's the the recitation, there's the, the reciting of confessions. And the confessionals are typically about God, Jesus, salvation, and how we should live for him. But it's, that's the confession we seek to have. So we are admitting something. We are, we are in confession of sin, we're, we're admitting and casting off our sin. But in confession of faith, we are admitting and casting, exalting praises to God and truths that he is. The people in Israel are confessing that God is huge and they're small. History repeats itself because we constantly try to make ourselves huge and God small. But he's huge. And we feel that even as they recite the history of God with his people. We feel his enormity. We feel only you, God. God, you are the Lord. You alone is how they started their confession. I think the first thing we see in the beginning of the chapter is the posture of confession. Uh, They have been informed by God's law. They remembered his faithfulness. And now they're, they're just humbled. They're humbled by God as they look at God's history with them, but also their present situation. And they put on sackcloth and earth on their heads. Sackcloth is not something that you're looking at. Like nobody has that in their house, right? Because it's uncomfortable. Like we don't have, oh, and there's our going through your coats. Oh, what am I going to wear today? Hmm, it's a little cold. Oh, I'm sinful. So let me take the sackcloth. Let me wear that. There's an intention that why they wore sackcloth and put dirt on their heads is because the sackcloth reminded them that their lives were not comfortable in this life, but also they should not be comfortable with their sin. They made themselves uncomfortable by putting on sackcloth. 
And the dirt that was on their heads was a reminder. Sin is dirty. And we need cleansing. This reminds us that there are dangers to a comfortable Christianity. And all of us. Boy, we want life to be comfortable, don't we? We, we stress ourselves to try to make life comfortable. We stress ourselves to try to find the relief of stress. We want a return on what we've put toward God. So we want to return our investment. So we look for peace. We look for security. We look for, for control. We live for comfort and ease. We look for these things. And if God doesn't give them to us, watch out. We, we might go find another God that we can seek to find some peace and security and ease from. The Christian is not to be comfortable in this life. There's a, there's a tension that we walk out as believers. There's a tension that we walk out that, that, that reminds us that this life is not our home. Heaven awaits us. That's when the ultimate relief will take place. But Jesus called his disciples to discomfort. Remember Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's physical discomfort. I don't have one place to go. I don't have a bed that welcomes me every night. He goes on to another. He said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me go first bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's emotional, uncom- that's emotional discomfort there. Yet for another, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, Though no, uh, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's relational discomfort. Wait, I have family that I need to, to still let them know what I'm doing. And Jesus he messes with that a little bit. The Christian life is one of... Discomfort, but don't forget, we have, and and that's why when Jesus was with his disciples right before he went to the cross, he's telling them of who? The Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. So where we want to seek comfort in things around us, he's saying, no, the comfort's going to be in you by the presence and power of the Spirit. In John 16, verse 33, he said, in the world you will have tribulation, means trouble. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And he gives the spirit so we can walk in that truth. Uh, This week in reading, I came across uh, a quote. This author quoted somebody else who said, there's really, there's three types of seasons that we walk in, in the Christian life. We are in the midst of trouble. We've just finished being in the midst of trouble or getting ready to enter trouble. The Christian life is filled with tribulation. But he says what? Jesus says, take heart. Take courage. It's not, it's not done for. It's not lost. It's not over. Because he has the victory. And we walk in him. So he says, there's joy. Make sure you go to me for the joy that you seek. 
So we see two things in this chapter. We see a confession of sin and a confession of faith. Our confession, the confession of sin is when we see the great, how great and holy God is. We are immediately aware of our impurity and our wrongs. Remember when Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted, he says, woe is me. I'm unclean and I'm impure. And I live among a people who are unclean and impure. But there's an intentionality about their confession of sin. They stood a quarter of the day listening to the preaching of the law and then for the next quarter of the day confessing, totaling six hours. That's intentional. We would not last, would we? No. There's other things we got to do. There's a, but they, they were intentional. They had other things to do. What always gets me, when I read of uh, pastors and, and people of the faith from the past, missionaries and stuff, they, from the 1800s or 1700s, do you know they, what they complained most about when they, they couldn't find time to read the word? How busy their lives were. They would look at us and think, how, what? I like, you call that busy? No, this is busy. You call that busy? The heart, the human heart is the same. We busy ourselves with this intentionality, but they also, with that intentionality, did not shift responsibility and blame others. When they could have, you know, these exiles that have returned, they've come saying, look, this place is in ruins and we're going to help rebuild it. It wasn't technically their fault that they were there. It was their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers. It was, it was what they confessed. Other people's sin put us in this situation. But they didn't, they didn't just blame everybody else. Other people are responsible for what I'm experiencing right now. No, they recognized something in themselves that was also in their fathers and their great-grandfathers and on the chain up. They repented of walking in the same sins. And they were specific in their confession of sin. They own their sin and what they saw in their fathers, they also saw in themselves. And all of our sins are a mirror of the Garden of Eden. And how we try to manage the effect of our sins is all in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they wanted to be God. They wanted to be like God, knowing all that God knew, uh, deceived that God was withholding something from them. And so they ate and they sinned. And their response to sin was what? Fear and shame. So what do they do? I'm going to go hide. I'm going to make fig leaves to cover this. So our, all of our sin is a mirror of, we, we think God is withholding, so I'm going to do something to get him. And then we respond to the sin the very same way. Running and hiding in fear and the shame that rests upon us. But God promises victory. And healing through Jesus. They are specific with the, the specificity that they have. Is one, they say, our fathers were arrogant. Verse 10, we see that word arrogance. You know, we, a lot of times we'll look at the effects of sin or just maybe what we think are very gross sins and count those in the categories of, well, at least I don't do that. We can't escape arrogance because all of us at some point we just do things out of pride and selfishness. Just, I want to do it my way. And either you're in the way or I'm just going to exercise control of you. I want my way. And you 
press play on Frank Sinatra's song. But pride really is the seedbed of all sins and struggles. Acted, in verse 16, we see, acted presumptuously. This is acting with pride, but more specifically, it's acting with entitlement. God, you owe us. They acted presumptuously. And now, look, they, they took from Abraham all the way through the judges is the history that they're recounting in this chapter. God seeking out Abraham, making a promise to him. And then, remember, uh, your descendants are going to spend 400 years in Egypt. And then we have the Egypt experience uh, through the Red Sea and, and destroying Pharaoh and his armies. And then into the promised land after the wilderness, Joshua leads them in the promised land. And then as they get in there, their comfort level increases and they turn away from God. And God sends warnings back to them. He says, careful, careful what you're doing. They, didn't, they ignored the warnings. They even killed the prophets. And that's when God said, enough. Assyria came for the northern kingdom. And then Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar came for the southern kingdom. And this is where they find themselves. But they said, our fathers acted with an entitlement. Their comfortable, Christian, or their comfortable relationship with God. And, and our uh, temptation is our comfortable Christianity can turn into an entitlement. God, I have done this for you and this is what I get in return. We act as if God owes us for our obedience. But remember, if God does not count our good works for our salvation, he doesn't count our good works after our salvation either. Does that make sense? He's not looking at, hey, make sure you're good enough so I can accept you into my kingdom. And then make sure you're good enough so I can keep you in my kingdom. But that's how we live. We get to a point, oh, no, it's not by works that I'm saved. Oh, I trust Jesus. Yes. But then we'll live as if it's up to us. And and we expect a blessing for all the good things that we've done. And God looks at us and says, "Your, your relationship with me is not based on your work before Christ or after. And we, we miss out on our freedom. But it sneaks in. I think God owes us, owes us a, a return on our, on our investment. Also in verse 16, we see that they stiffened their necks. This is the picture of an animal who refuses to go in the direction of its master. And that's what God's people did. They, they did not want to walk in his good and perfect and acceptable will. They wanted their own. They just refused. Verse 18, they committed blasphemies. And it got all the way to the point of making an idol. Making a golden calf after, remember, after the Exodus, God delivers his people after the Red Sea. Moses up on Mount Sinai, and he's spending time with God. The people get fearful. This is uncomfortable. What happened to him? Is he dead? We don't know. We can't go up on the mountain because there's thunder and lightning going on, and we're really afraid. So Aaron... Moses' brother, help us out. Give me all your gold. And we're just going to fashion something. They made an idol, a golden calf. And Aaron turns to them and says, this is blasphemy. Behold, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, a golden calf. How often we seek peace, and security, and value in the quickest way possible when we think that God is busy somewhere else or he's just not responding to us? See, when we, when we look to something for peace and security and value other than Christ, other than God, 
We are, we are in essence bowing down to an idol saying, please, and we'll make sacrifices to it. Please give me this. It could be a relationship. It could be a thing. It could be a dream. And we need to work really hard to achieve that dream. Anything that we're looking for peace and value and security from, other than God, becomes a functional savior in our lives. Save me from my wreck of a life or save me from my discomfort. Verse 26, they were disobedient. They rebelled, cast, their, cast the law behind their backs, killed the prophets, and in verse 29, turned a stubborn shoulder. This is the picture of disdain. God, Ooh. But lest we think that we're not capable we need to have their same response as the people. Hey, uh, our fathers did that. Uh, we sense the same thing could happen in us as well. Because these are heart-level issues that everybody struggles with. And the work of confession does not end with sin. And we've got to be careful not to focus on our sins in so, uh, so much that we, we actually neglect what God says over us and our sin. Because we'll just make things worse. Confession of sin is casting them off. Why? Because we want to say, God, I want to empty myself so you, so I can mature into the life that you had deposited in me by the power of the Spirit. New life. Confession, look, cast off. Where do we cast those? We cast our sins on God. Jesus We recognize in that moment how Jesus paid for every single one of our sins. And then we say, oh, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. And that begins the confession of faith. Now, these are itemized really so analytically because that's how my mind thinks. But all of this is involved, right? It's all, it's, it's meshed together. We see God. We, we, under, we see ourselves and we throw that on God and then we recognize who God is and it was, oh, he rescues us from that. And so we just, we go this over and over. But as we're doing that, we're being conformed to the image of God's beloved son, which is our best life. Now, the third component is confession of faith. We have posture, confession of sin, now confession of faith. God I love that phrase, you are the Lord, you alone. We have to remind ourselves of that. In moments of fear, moments of insecurity, moments of discomfort. uh, discomfort. But look, he, he alone is God because he's the one that initiated with Abram. He found Abram. Abram wasn't necessarily looking for God. He, he goes to Abram. Hey, I want to I make a relationship with you. I want you. And then he keeps his promises. How we need to remember that when we think that God is off doing something else or late in answering our prayers. He protected and delivered his people. Why? To make a name for himself. He provided for their needs. He provided bread in the form of manna, water from the rock. Their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out. Can you imagine having one pair of shoes for 40 years? That's what they had. And your feet not hurting. That's what they had. That's a serious level of provision. But God also preserved his name. And he gave them the land that he had promised Abraham. He did everything that he said he would do. That alone makes him God. Because nobody else. We, well, how often we 
promise. Where my family's watching this uh, TV series uh, on a streaming deal, and it's just they constantly promise, and it annoys me so much because they're always breaking their promises. And like, I'm sorry. That's like catastrophic consequences. Like, I'm sorry. I promise. I promise. I promise. Whoa. That's your yes, be yes, and your no, be no. Hold on. But it becomes a little irritating when they promise. So God keeps all of his promises. So when he promises us, we don't have to be suspicious or skeptical or cynical. He is God alone. And he's a God who forbears with the difficulty and wickedness of his people. When the people were faithless, God was faithful. In the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy, when we are faithless, he's still faithful. And he bore with them in the face of their idolatry, the face of complaining, in the face of pride and entitlement and ignoring him. In their stubbornness, he stayed with them. He did not forsake them. Church, why do we think he's going to forsake us? He has not changed his manner of relationship. It's actually gotten better. It's more secure because of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. In verse 17, we see that he is merciful. Several different times, because of your great mercy, God is ready to forgive. He's ready to forgive. This is what Moses saw. Remember on Mount Sinai, God, uh, Moses says to God, show me your glory. Because I can't, I can't reconcile who these people are and why you still love them. I can't reconcile why you even, why you did, why you have you done what you have done. But God, why? Show me your glory. God keeps him in the rock and then shows him, in essence, his backside. What did he see? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity. Wow. That's, that's what God chose to show Moses of his glory. That's, that's glory that we are to be captured by and to fill our gaze. God is merciful. He is ready to forgive. And God is a God who delivers. Verse 28, he delivered them. In verse 32, he's committed. He keeps steadfast love. He keeps it. Because he is the covenant keeper. He is the promise keeper. He is God alone. So church, we want to confess his greatness. We want to confess faith. We want to confess truths about who God is. But in that moment, we're confessing those truths because we understand, God, that's how you've been toward me. If I, if I confess God as a God ready to forgive and merciful because I recognize he's done that in my heart. He has forgiven me. He's been merciful to me. He has delivered me. He's protected and provided and preserved. And you know what the promise is? He's still the same. And he's going to keep on doing it. And his relationship with us is not is not hinged on how well we do for him. It's all about him. Because of what they saw in God, they prayed with confidence that God would respond to their hardship. Look, they're in the end of verse 37, in great distress. God, 
we, we see how you have responded to our, our fathers and the history that we have and the history now that we're living in because of their lack of faith. But God, we're, we're slaves today. So God, listen now. Would you respond now and come deliver us? We've got, we've got people who are ruling over us that, that are not you. But God, we want you to rule over us. And they needed a savior from their slavery. And they said, just like you sent the saviors to save your people, they were the judges who they're referring to. Send a savior, they're saying. You know what? He has. He has sent a savior. Not just a man who relieved something for a few years and then started the cycle over again. Now, this is the Savior that comes and ends all the turmoil, ends all the interior chaos of our struggle with ourselves, with God. When we confess, God, I am a sinner, separated from you, but you sent that Savior to take my punishment upon himself on the cross. So I by trusting in him, could then have his life. And the resurrection guarantees it. That's what the resurrection does. If ever you wonder, if ever your children ask you, how do we know this is, how, how do we know this is true? How do we know Jesus is the only way? How do we know this? How do we know the Bible is true? One reason, because Jesus rose from the dead. So it makes everything that he said true. And he said this about himself, that he would, raise, would rise from the dead. He thought the Old Testament was literal and actual events. Therefore, the Old Testament, we have confidence the Old Testament is not just made up stories. We look at Jesus. He rose from the dead. So it makes all of this true. And we don't have to work that up, try to convince ourselves. He rose from the dead. Uh, when Easter comes around in April... There's going to be another segment of either a news show or a history uh, documentary about somebody who thinks they found the tomb of Jesus. And every time they walk in that tomb, they're going to be disappointed, just like Geraldo Rivera was. Remember when he went to that safe? It's like, well, this is quite underwhelming. They're going to be underwhelmed because Jesus ain't in the grave. He's alive. And he is with us. So as the band comes back up, we are going to uh, conclude with a confessional song that we've done before. Is he worthy? But this is a good conclusion. Just to recognize the Savior that we have. It wasn't just a man because he was the God-man who deals with all of it. Lord, thank you. Thank you for our well, thank you for your love that secures us to you and a relationship with you. God, and I ask that you would also, even as we'll look at next week with chapter 10, that you would do something in us that, that would, that would uh, restore courage and trust in you in order to live lives of confession with one another. And, and not, not oh, that, that confession of sin would be alongside of confession of faith in order to, to recognize the encouragement 
that being a confessional community and having, having a culture of confession helps us with. So Lord, we exalt you and we, we thank you for the gift of song that helps us exalt you as well. and tongue. He has made us a kingdom of priests to God. 
blessing and honor and glory is he worthy of this he Scripture for our commission, different than Matthew 28, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our commission from this to be a confessional church. Walk with Jesus. Walk with one another to experience his healing. Amen? Amen. 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 God bless us. Have a great day.